This is Hashtag Authentic, a podcast for creatives online. I'm Sarah Tasker and this is episode 31. So my guest this week is Nick Speller, who I met when we were both presenting on a panel in London a few months back, and I just loved everything he had to say that night. I always have this slight paranoia when I'm on a panel that what I'm going to say will end up being directly contradicted by a fellow panellist, and then it will all sort of disintegrate and turn into like a public debate or an episode of BBC Question Time. Just a hideous mess, basically. So I was especially delighted to find that so much of what Nick and I had to say dovetailed together really perfectly. Um, things that I felt like I have just been a lone voice on for a long time were actually coming out of his mouth and I've since discovered he has been sharing also as a lone voice out there on the internet. And so I immediately knew that I needed to bag him for this podcast so that you could also gain some of his brilliance and wisdom about all things internet and social media and influence marketing too. So in this episode, we talk about how Instagram and social media have really evolved over the last four or five years and the role that influence marketing has had to play in that. And Nick shares some great insight from his experience of working with brands and agencies and just a heap of key lessons for anyone trying to grow an audience or create sales or traction online. Hi, Nick. Welcome to Hashtag Authentic. Hi, thanks for having me. So people may be familiar with your work or they might not be. Could you give us a quick intro to what you do? I'm an influencer marketing expert, I guess. Um, I've worked in the industry for four years. I currently work for a large agency called Habas and a smaller department within that called Socialize, and we specialize specifically in influencer marketing. Strategy, influencer identification, and all of the creative stuff that goes on around influencer marketing. So it's a fun job to have, and it's a very interesting and exciting time to be in the industry, as you well know, because influencer marketing just seems to be going from strength to strength and gaining in interest. Absolutely. It almost didn't exist five years ago. What were you doing five years ago? What was I doing five years ago? That's a really good question. <laughs> five years ago, I had just moved to London and I was working for a political risk consultancy. So wow. try and work that jump out. I uh, can kind <laughs> of see a thread. It's all about... Yeah, yeah, I guess. Well, I was I was doing a lot with food blogging. So I started my own very, very small food blog. But then back about five years ago, most blogs were quite small. And I sort of entered into a very exciting new community on Twitter because it was only Twitter really back then, of food bloggers and people who are interested in restaurants. And obviously, I've moved to London. I needed new friends. I was kind of spending my commuting time on Twitter talking to people about food. I got invited to review restaurants and invited to little food groups and things like that. And it kind of, that was what started my interest in the whole influencer marketing space, I guess, without even knowing it, because back then, no one even said the words in influencer marketing so no I can remember so I guess going back about four years to when I was working my day job which was for the NHS equally irrelevant <laughs> and I would spend my lunch breaks googling for like influencer marketing agencies kind of the the people you work with now and there was about 10 in the world yeah absolutely uh, and I would pitch myself to them whereas now if, I'm sure if you did that google search now there would be hundreds upon hundreds of and I would say varying in quality yeah no no definitely it's the market is becoming very busy I guess on both sides influencer and on the agency side and that's I mean I started doing this I say like three four years ago and that's why I started I started working for myself purely because there 
there weren't really any jobs out there, if that makes sense. Yeah. I sort of decided I wanted to work in influencer marketing. And then, like you, when I typed it into Google, a few companies came up, but they were very small. They didn't have vacancies. So I just thought, you know what? There's some opportunities out there. I'll, I'll start work myself. Whereas now, if you type influencer marketing manager or consultant or whatever into Google, you're going to get a whole list of open vacancies and jobs and et cetera, et cetera. So, so yeah, it's, it's come on leaps and bounds, hasn't it? And there's a lot, there's a role, I suppose, in what you do and in what people like I do, where it's almost just an education thing, where we're, especially over the past few years, really have been trying to get people's head around what influencer marketing is and what it isn't and steer it in the direction that we'd quite like it to go. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I think the last couple of years have really been education heavy and a lot of brands, a lot of agencies and as I think we even said on the, the panel that you and I did a few weeks ago, a lot of even influencers, you know, there's a lot of unknowns out there. People don't know how to operate. They don't know the best way to operate. And actually, yeah, a lot of my job now and more so two, three years ago, but still now is is that initial education, just showing people kind of what's what's out there, what's available and trying to steer people in the direction which I think will benefit them rather than just produce, I don't know, more of the same or or actually damage the industry by producing content and campaigns which don't actually generate any return, which is kind of the worst position for them to be in. Right, and that there is still a lot of that around. I'm sure we can both agree on that, and I'm sure people listening are aware of it too, that for every great influencer campaign you come across that, that works, it works for the audience, it works for the influencer, and it works for the brand, and it's achieving everybody's objectives, you're probably going to come across at least two for each one where mm. it feels a lot more kind of slapdash or it's just a very kind of lip service approach where they're just trying to get it done would you, would you say that was fair oh yeah absolutely someone put on twitter today and i would love to name check them because but i actually can't remember who it was they said something like i, I don't understand when people say they've seen bad influencer marketing who would ever set out to create bad content and quite a few people agreed but quite a few people replied and said it's not so much bad content but it's kind of I guess it's just flatline. It's just mediocre. Mm. Um, I keep using the phrase because I get hooked on certain phrases and use them till they're, till they're dead and then I move <laughs> on. But I keep saying dialed in. I see a lot of dialed in content yeah. where even from influencers who I quite like and, and respect and I can understand if they get offered a lot of money. But it's that thing of you know quick turnaround content. It's just, okay, I'll pose with the product. I'll write a few throwaway lines underneath and I'll move on. You know, I'll take the check and move on. And that's the kind of content that... I see quite regularly and I think it's the kind of content you're referring to yes it's rare that I see something that's truly terrible it's just generally you just look at it and you just think meh like what, yes. what's that saying what's that doing and I actually think part of the problem with that as well is is that there are so few role models for good influencer content and there is a much wider role modeling of that sort of content so a lot of the time when people first land a sponsorship their only model for what a sponsored post looks like is that very mediocre lackluster dialed in type of content yeah no absolutely I think there is this is kind of I guess this is much more my personal view than perhaps a professional one but I kind of see the industry as being people who want to create and people who want to replicate in a way so there's there's a Mm. there's a good body of people out there who just want the lifestyle they see people on Instagram going to kind of cool events and getting free drinks and perhaps getting free holidays and things and they think I really want a piece of that and their goal is to get that and so they will produce content which is fine but is always geared towards just building that 
that profile and that lifestyle. Whereas I think the people who really kind of cut through all the noise out there on social media are the people who have a kind of creative vision. And sometimes those people don't even know they have a creative vision, but they've sort of sat down and they've gone, they've never really, a lot of them haven't even thought about it. They just started creating content that they really like and it resonates with a lot of people and they become an influencer almost by mistake. So, and I think those are the people who, you know, when I'm working with a brand, they're the people I really look for because to me, they're the people who, you know, their content will get just as many likes as some of the, the other guys' content. But actually, I think those likes and those comments are more engaged, they're more important, and their audience is more connected. I totally agree. And it's interesting because this is something I have a draft post saved in my blog. I don't know if you do this as well. I have like posts and then I think, oh, I just don't know if it's a little bit controversial. So I'm just going to sit on it <laughs> for a while until I feel okay. Uh, I have some of those, but it depends what mood I'm in. Sometimes I'll just write, I tend to post articles on LinkedIn about influencer marketing. Sometimes I'll just write one in a kind of fury and then I'll just post it because I don't want to sit on it because I know I then won't post it. Yeah, maybe I need to just get brave. because The article that I've written is kind of along those lines, really saying that like, actually, if you start to tease apart what the word influencer means, like some people are real trailblazers and they are the first ones to discover a trend or a style and they set out to kind of tell anybody about it just because they genuinely love it. And that's a very different thing to somebody who sees somebody else's style, but then shares it with a much wider audience that they maybe have. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there's there's different kind of grades within that. I guess the difficulty is thinking about publishing an article along those lines or or any article that you think might be controversial. Because... And it's something I think that we sometimes forget. Influencers are individuals. Yeah. And it's really, so, you know, in the whole marketing world, it's very easy to really critique and badmouth a brand's actions. So you'll talk about PR, you'll talk about their ads, you'll talk about any degree of their marketing, and you can just kind of really slag it off because it's just a brand at the end of the day. And there are people within that brand, but it's kind of faceless. But when it's an individual, it's a lot harder to do that. And I guess that's probably why you're more kind of reserved in posting that because you know that some people might be offended and actually you're not kind of setting out to offend people are you no and certainly not thinking of anyone in particular except really my own experiences I suppose yeah yeah it's always a disappointment to me that when you very clearly disclose say a blog post is being sponsored that it automatically gets a lot less engagement like it gets fewer clicks Mm. and I think that the main reason it does is not because people see the product and are not interested but because people's experience of sponsored content has been disappointing yeah across the internet definitely I think there's I think partly maybe this is just a British thing but there is there's always a little bit of skepticism with 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 sponsored posts we're always a bit like that and it's but when they're done really well they you know they deserve the as much engagement or attention as other posts one of the things we look at at our agency is actually measuring people's content on the kind of splitting it between sponsored or ads and and non-sponsored because then it gives you a kind of true reflection because Mm -hmm. as you say like organic content generally performs better than than ads but actually what you want to see is what's the difference in the ratio between those two numbers so if you if you're posting organically and getting let's just hypothetically say 10,000 likes. Let's just keep it really simple and talk about Instagram, 10,000 likes. But your sponsored posts only get 2,000 likes versus someone who gets 10,000 likes on an organic post and 8,000 likes on the sponsored. Mm. You could kind of 
start to say, okay, well, the person who's got the closer match is doing this in a better way because their content's more credible. Obviously, fewer people were discouraged from liking because it was sponsored. Um, So that's what we've started to look at, or at least I've started to look at. It's such a new field. It's so much kind of evolving along the way. So it's kind of fascinating. It feels a little bit like we're scientists (laughs) testing it all out and and working out what works and what doesn't. Yeah, well, I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm part of me is a bit of a geek and a nerd and I, I'm always keen to get my hands on data to kind of explore what we can we can learn about these things and I think that's coming the social media channels Instagram Facebook Twitter they're starting to to put out more data so we can start to really understand how content resonates I think with this one of the beauties of this industry is though that we'll never truly understand that and actually one of the things I really like about it is that there's a heavy dose of creativity in there yes I think, well, I mean, I say heavy dose, you know, it is literally 90% creativity. Yeah, you have to know what you're doing. You have to know how to, how to play the game in terms of, you know, you have to know how to post on Instagram. You have to know about hashtags. You have to know that, that you have to do more to get your name out there than simply post and wait for people to come to you. But at the same time, if your content is, isn't good, it doesn't matter what you do online. You're not going to get the engagement and the audience that you you are seeking i think i was saying yes yes so, totally. and that applies to branded and and organic content and i always say it comes down to you need to be good at the creative stuff you also need to be good at human interaction and that doesn't necessarily mean face to face human interaction because a lot of us end up on the internet because we prefer it one way yeah. or another as a way to communicate but you need to be able to understand when something is resonating or when it's not and understand your audience and what it is that they're there for and how you can deliver that well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm doing a presentation next week to a client and that is actually one of my slides. Is <laughs> something about social media being social. Like, don't forget yes. it's social. Like, it's a key component of it. I think we've stepped away from that a bit. I like Originally, when it was just Twitter and it was there was kind of no content in a way, it was a lot of it was just communication. Yeah. People would just talk. And people get a following by being witty or funny or being helpful or useful and or basically just being communicative. And then it kind of, I guess, with Instagram, I mean, blogs are always there being, you know, as a creative outlet. Instagram kind of shifted that and made it. It's all about a lot of it's about creativity and a lot of it's about the content. And then people forget the social aspect. Now, I see some influencers who don't follow anyone, which I find really, really strange. Yeah. And I'm like how you're basically a magazine now. And no, we've said this before in our uh, panel talk about how you know influencers need to see themselves as publishers, but you don't want to see yourself as a traditional magazine in that you don't communicate with your audience. No. Otherwise, you're missing one of the key components of of social media. People are on social media for social interaction, and it's not a broadcasting platform; it is a conversational platform, whichever one you run. Yeah. No, absolutely. Unless you're Beyonce. Well, yeah, unless you're entering to the realms of celebrity. And I think that's where I look at a lot of influencers who are my friends. I see them doing really well because they're because they're personable and because they're they're approachable and because they're engaging on social media. That's where a lot of their fan base they produce brilliant content and they know what they're doing. But a heavy amount of their following comes from the fact that people really like them um, and they like the fact that they engage with them. So there was an article that I saw shared on Twitter that had been written by you that I really loved and ended up sharing quite widely as well about the difference between influencers and what you were calling enablers. Could you talk about that for everybody? Yeah, sure. I think the first thing to say, and I say this in the article, is that 
I picked up on this term and basically stole it from a couple of friends of mine, <laughs> Matt Buckets and Jordan Bunker, who some of your listeners might have heard of. They're definitely influencers and they're out there in the menswear, the men's lifestyle world. Um, so go and, go and have a look at them, Twitter and Instagram, just to just to set that caveat up front. <laughs> but yeah, I found it really interesting. We went for a drink and we when we go for drinks, we talk about the industry, we talk about influencer marketing, and they mentioned this term enablers. And it just kind of twigged something in me. I thought, yeah, this is this is actually a really good term because I've been looking for other ways of describing influencers and people say creatives and creators and, and you know, a whole range of different terms. But enabler really seemed to fit a certain set of influencers in which I would definitely include those two guys. And I guess the, the an enabler for me is someone who lives a lifestyle that other people want to live, but is a lifestyle that is realistic and not overly ambitious, if that makes sense. And I think we see that quite a lot in London with people, you know, going to coffee shops, buying from certain brands, doing certain things at the weekend, riding certain push bikes, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's attainable. Yeah, it's easily attainable. All of us could go and do that. Aspirational, but attainable, I guess. Yeah, it's kind of like, I don't know, a small percentage aspirational. You're not going to have to change your life radically to do it. And I think, I mean, people have always done that for you know, since the beginning of time, really, uh, you know, looked up to people and tried to adapt their lifestyle to suit what they like the look of. I guess the thing with influencer marketing is that, you know, brands, in my view, and I say it's in the article, need to kind of be on the lookout for enablers who suit their their industry. Because when people look to uh, look to these enablers to to kind of look at their lifestyle, they they look at the brands, either consciously or subconsciously, that these girls and guys are kind of buying using wearing whatever it is that they do with them so i don't know if you took fitness for instance there are fitness enablers out there people who aren't this you know the huge muscly guys with Hmm. ripped ripped six packs they aren't the kind of the girls in america who you know work out on the beach and that kind of thing they're people who go running they're people who go cycling and the clothes they wear and the bikes they ride are the sort of things that people will pick up on and start to gravitate towards and that to me is it's kind of key for our industry to recognize i guess the thing with enablers is it's all about it's the classic it's all about authenticity you know they are authentic they're not living a lie they're not living or not even not living a lie not living a life that that is outside the realms of possibility and i find with these people they're kind of i've always thought of them as like natural influencers the key thing that when you talk to these people is they've kind of had it all their life all their life like someone's copied people at work have copied their clothes or their bag or you know when they've been at school they've been the person that everybody kind of would copy their trainers or like they've always had that sort of element of influence or that sort of I guess it's like an element of good taste I don't know what we would call it yeah no I'd I'd agree with that I also think that you know, and this is something I really think brands don't appreciate enough and, and a lot of agencies. You know, these guys are very good at what they do. If you take someone like Matt, who writes the blog Buckets and Spades, who introduced me to this term, you know, he's he has an education in fashion design and fashion marketing. He's spent a lot of his life you know, working on his photography, working on his composition, working on working in the fashion industry on, you know, what clothes go together, what what brands work well with each other what clothes look nice etc etc you know this isn't something that's just like in a way it is it's that whole thing is it natural or is it learned it's probably a combination of the two yeah but it's it's something that's a real craft it's not something that's just like oh it's really simple to do you know i couldn't do what he does 
it would just I'd have to have the same teaching that he had and I probably in 10 years time would still not be half as good so it's that that thing that you know that there's a real credible skill in doing that incredibly skilled people kind of at your fingertips and that's why I always say that influence marketing is such good value for money because mm. if you wanted to kind of go out and employ that skill set and get that content created in another way like say for an Instagram post you'd probably have to hire like an art director a stylist a photographer a social media manager maybe even a copywriter to do the caption for you and you can yeah. just get all of that rolled into one and all done to like top-notch standard by a good influencer or enabler yeah for the actually peanuts yeah. <laughs> um, yeah but but money that at the same time is is a decent wage slash living for the influencer um and i i talked about this last night when i went for dinner with the other guy I mentioned in the enable thing jordan and he was talking about a brand who'd approached him for some content because they love his content and he said the brand's not ready for me and they were like you know oh okay then you know goodbye sort of thing we'll we'll maybe we'll call you in a year and see if you change your mind and i was saying to him well why don't they use you to create the content still but just you're not in it yeah you know they like your creative look they like your creative eye you're going to, as you've just said, quite rightly, he is going to be a lot cheaper than an agency, than an art director, than a fully fledged photographer. And if they like the content he's creating, why doesn't he direct the content? Why doesn't he produce it? And why doesn't he find someone else to be in it who does, who does like the brand and does match the brand? And then you've got the best of both worlds because you've got someone who's authentic, who likes the brand and would wear the brand. And then you've got a person who's creating content that the brand feels is really them and will resonate well with the audience they're going for actually putting that together. And there you've, that to me is just win-win. I think a lot of the time brands just see influencers as they're increasingly seeing them just purely as an ad space, right. not actually looking at, not looking at the kind of inherent skills that they have and, you know, the other ways in which they could offer them real value. Right. Which can be very frustrating from an influencer perspective because you kind of know where your strengths are and you know your audience really well, you know, what's going to work and resonate and sometimes a brand will come to you with a different set of objectives yeah. to the ones that you might have yourself. And likewise, I'm sure from a brand perspective, there are times when they can't get an influencer on board to their own objectives. If you could say like one thing that you would like brands to be aware of for when they're working with influencers and maybe to be doing differently, could you pick one thing? One thing would be fancy. Top five. <laughs> I guess one term for me is due diligence i had a call today with part of the business we're giving some consulting work to another brand and actually another agency who'd helped this brand out and we were looking at the influence work they'd done and the, the thing that really struck home i was saying to them is you know, do your due diligence and you've got to look at the people you want to work with and actually scrutinize them properly and i don't just mean from the perspective of the the ever talked about kind of insta fraud or you know any unscrupulous behavior like that i mean just in terms of do they match the brand do they actually genuinely match the brand's look and feel mm. are they creating the kind of content you want are they actually working or have they worked for a competitor recently which is what happened here that the influencers in question had worked for another brand a rival brand not two or three instagram posts ago so he's just thinking why haven't you looked at this? You know, that doesn't take very long. And when you're thinking of, you know, as the money increases in influencer marketing, you know, why aren't, I can understand if it's a, it's a small amount of money, you don't want to spend too much time on it. 
but if it's if it's getting into serious money, then you should really be looking at this. Any other area of marketing, you would look at these things, in my view. And it's frustrating. I know from an influencer perspective, again, you get these emails and they always start with saying, I'm such a fan of your blog. I'm such a fan of your Instagram because they want to establish that rapport. But then when they immediately dive into <laughs> a really yeah. inappropriate pitch, you, you've lost me instantly because I know yeah. that the first two lines were not not true. Yeah, no, absolutely. I actually, I mean, I contact quite a few influencers every week for projects. And I, maybe I'm, I don't know, sometimes I think maybe I'm being a bit too unprofessional. But my email influencers are always very quick, very friendly, and very much focused on why I think they will work. And actually, sometimes, uh, and this week has been a case in point, I've actually emailed them saying, look, I know you don't think you'll work, but the brand will do think you'll work for these reasons. What do you think? Because, again, we go back to the point we made earlier. Influencers are people. This is a social. This is a social endeavor. This is a social game. And you know, I've written for blogs, and I do still write for a blog. And we get emails, and they're so long. And it's like, mm-hmm. as you say, it's like get to the point. And actually, yeah, it says, "I love your work," but there's no, there's no mention of the work. There's no like, you know, what do you love about the work? And then, as you say three paragraphs down it says you know would you advertise this teeth whitening product and you're like you've just you haven't looked at our work have yeah. you you know yeah you know come to us with the teeth whitening product but come to it from the angle of we know you've never covered this before but we think you'd be a really good fit for x y and z reasons even just i've just found your blog but i really like what i've seen so far and does this sound yeah. like you know if you've not got the time yeah. to do all that research because it is a really yeah. low budget campaign or whatever then yeah, there's no need to bullshit people. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's part of the problem. I guess, it, and it's one of my biggest bugbears in influencer marketing now, I think part of the problem is an efficiency drive from the point of view of brands. So what they do is they get a database, they get a list, and they just email everyone on it. Right. And, you know, all they're doing is changing the name at the top and they're using an email send-out program. And you think, you know, a mail merge. And you just think it's – if you start on that footing, the content you eventually create is never going to be that credible. No. Because – the people who you really want to work with are going to ignore that stuff. And the people you probably don't want to work with are going to be all over it. Occasionally, you'll hit the mark, but it's, it increases the risk that, that you won't. But I see this more and more. I see to get people presenting new technologies to me for streamlining influencer management, you know, automating influencer campaigns. And I just think, I think this, it worries me because I think it's just it's missed the point completely. It needs a human touch. You need the human touch. And if you start on that footing, the content you produce will be automated. And automated content doesn't sell anything. It doesn't attract people to a brand because it has no real creativity. And the whole point of influence marketing is that it's real people versus an advert, which feels automated and clinical. It's a real person talking from the heart. Absolutely. I see, you know, I, I do quite a bit of work in the drinks industry. I really like drinks and drinking Um, (laughs) and I see a lot of drinks brands just putting out content and I just think you've missed the why completely you've gone for the you're basically just as you've said you've just recreated an advert that you would have put on the bill on a billboard in the 1970s of you know a smooth looking guy holding a glass of whiskey and you when you read the copy you're like there's nothing in here that that endears me to this brand and I just don't understand you know, why you've why you've gone about it in this way i don't think that when they look at it in the cold light of day they're not going to see a return on that investment no and the influencer is likely to see a dip in engagement because of it because 
rarely yeah. are there any Instagram accounts that are dedicated to reproducing 1970s billboard pictures. Although if exactly. someone did that, that would be quite cool. Yes, <laughs> I'm sure. I I think there's an Instagram account for everything now. I bet there is a 1970s <laughs> recreation ad account. If there's not, I bagsy it, okay? Surely <laughs> yeah, it's going to it, be mine. You heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, that whole side of it for me, as I said, due diligence and moving away from the there's kind of the temptation of automation because I think that will end up filling all of our Instagram and Twitter and everything else feeds with just easily replicable content that's just boring and yeah just skippable yeah and and there's another I think that's another good point that people kind of forget is that you know these these social medias came from nothing but they only ever got popular because they managed to capture people's attention. Mm. And there are already reports out there saying, you know, the, the, the youth of today, the kids of today don't go on social media as much as maybe not my generation, but the generation after me, you know, people five years younger than me do and did. And actually they're getting turned off by it. And I think they're getting turned off by it because when they go on there for the first time, they're not seeing anything of value. The stuff of value is hidden within a mass of, of rubbish of generic bland exactly and i think the rest of us who grew up with social media or were there from the beginning i guess it's that whole you know boiling the frog thing or if you leave a frog in a pan of cold water and heat it up it doesn't move it's like we've kind of just got used to it over time whereas i bet if none of us have been on instagram and we all went on instagram today we probably a lot of us would just go oh no that's not really for me yeah rhiannon gave an interview this week actually not that i actually read rihanna interviews that that commonly but she gave an interview this week where she said that instagram is no longer the place where you go for trends and when was the last time you saw a trend for the first time on instagram and that really hit me because it used to be no that's a that's a really good point i think we talked about this again at that at the the panel was you know that the serialization of instagram you know serial magazine was really trend setting and is really good is brilliant and has done a lot to really inspire people to become more creative, but it's also inspired a lot of people to replicate Serial Magazine. And that's fine because a lot of that content is enjoyable. People really like it, but there comes a tipping point where that's no longer, you know, fashions don't continue forever. People go, actually, I'm not really into that, and it will dip down. And I'm sure Serial Magazine will remain, but a lot of the people who try to copy it will kind of lose, you know, they'll lose engagement, they'll lose heart. And if Instagram's the place to go for that kind of content, it will become boring and stale. Yeah, especially as it becomes less and less about people creating kind of who are on the forefront of that and innovating and redesigning that content and much more about people just replicating that content and kind of feels a bit like an echo chamber instead of something that's pushing boundaries. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there is a lot of Instagram content out there which is just photoshopped to such an extreme but not in a way that's in any way kind of very creative that you just start to feel like... You know, you're like, this is just not, I don't know, it's not, it's not cool anymore. Yeah. I think there is a lot of, you know, I think I, again, we're chatting about this the other day with a couple of people, you know, there's a lot of talk out there at the minute saying, oh, Instagram engagement is down because they're, because of the algorithm. And I personally think that the algorithm has some part to play in it, but I think it's a lot smaller than people are prepared to admit. I think one of the biggest problems is kind of content fatigue. You know, our benchmark for what is a good piece of content has risen considerably. Right. You know, five five years ago, maybe not five years ago, even two three years ago on Instagram, what looked real, you know, what was 
great content would capture your eye and you go, wow, that's amazing. Now there's lots of very similar content that is all equally great. So great has now become bland and boring. And actually what really engages us is, is kind of super great is the amazing stuff. Extraordinary. And it has to, and it's extraordinary. And that's, that's kind of fine in a way, but obviously as Instagram fills up with more and more of the just standard stuff, it becomes harder to pick out the real, the real quality. Exactly. And also because, I mean, Instagram started as a platform really for photographers or people who were very visually motivated. Like we all got on it mainly for the filters, didn't we, back in the day? Yeah. So it was people who loved taking photos and sharing. But since it's been bought by Facebook, they've had a real push to be for everybody. They want it to be a social network that everybody can use, not just for creatives, not just for photographers. So the people doing the liking now are coming from a much broader base as well. It's not just people who are very visually attuned to good imagery versus less good imagery, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. I think that's the lifestyle dimension, isn't it? I think people are, are now, Instagram's become this kind of hub of, I think it became it accidentally, and they didn't set out to become this sort of lifestyle hub, but they've become that. And Facebook has realized that that's where, or at least Facebook has seen that that's where the value lies. So that's what they're pushing for. But I completely agree. I think by doing that, they lose that core audience. And I think, or at least they water down that core audience. And actually, the proposition isn't as strong. Yes. I mean, my kind of take on social media in general is, you know, they do have this this kind of problem, which I think will kill a lot of them. And that's the continuous drive for growth. Mm. And Facebook are always trying to grow. And actually, you think, well, can you, though? Can you maintain those levels of growth? And they have to do that to please their investors and please the market because the market only ever sees growth as the driving factor of value. That's why people say with Twitter, they're like, oh, Twitter's not growing as much. Therefore, it's not of any value. And you think there's 300 million people on there. That's valuable. Even <laughs> yeah, every day, even if 300 million people never becomes 300 million and one, it's still 300 million. Yeah. And if I told you that, you know, the billboards I'd put up around London attracted 300 million people, but would never attract any more. Would you take all your ads off the billboards? You wouldn't. You'd go, well, this is great. It's got 300 million people. And it's the same for Instagram. You think, well, the more you dilute your core proposition to get more followers or to get a higher growth rate, do you lose the actual value of the service? Right. And so they've had to introduce the algorithm to deal with the fact that there are so many more users on there and so much more content. Mm. But it's actually reduce the user satisfaction for an awful lot of people so yeah yeah definitely i think um on the algorithm as well i actually think there's a strong case to say stories has had a big part to play in Mm. falling engagement rates because there is only a finite you know stories will make you go on instagram a bit more but it will never like double your usage or in very rare cases it might but most people it won't and actually when you go on instagram now and you used to only be able to scroll down that's all you could do now you can you can swipe right to open your camera to start to just do a few throwaway stories. You can scroll to the left to see all the different Instagram stories and find someone whose video you want to watch. You can hit play all. You can do all of this stuff without ever leaving that first image. And actually that multiplied many, many, many times means that that first image is going to get a like, but the second and third image won't. Yeah. Because it's all competing for our time and attention. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes I saw an Instagram and I think, I haven't actually scrolled down. <laughs> so, you know, I've been on there for like, I'm eating my lunch. I'll go on there for like 10 minutes. I haven't scrolled down. And then if when you do scroll, the algorithm isn't quite delivering 
what you would have wanted to see, then you're less motivated to scroll the next time as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. You were like, oh, well, you know, this was three days ago and it's someone saying happy Friday and it's yeah. a Monday. What, what the hell's going on? So it's, you know, there's there's that element too. And obviously... It's kind of layers. I think Messenger has become bigger on Instagram. You know, I spend more time talking to people on there now behind the scenes than I used to. Mm. And that obviously detracts from comments. It used to just be you'd only ever comment because yeah. that's the only way you could talk to people. So it's so I guess by adding all these things, they have reduced that core element and that has had a knock-on effect onto, onto engagement. I totally agree. I do think it's a much more complex picture than simply, oh, they turned the algorithm switch on and suddenly yeah. everyone's engagement dropped. And the variables we could go on about for hours. It's fascinating. There are so many. Well, yeah. To rewind to the question I asked you earlier, I asked you what brands could do differently. What about influencers or aspiring influencers as there are kind of some key messages of things you'd like to see them reconsider hmm, that's that's a, that's a tough one i guess the whole notion of dialing in yeah. is one thing i think what i find really interesting now is that you've got a lot of influencers out there who are making it or have made it and are really considering themselves and their content and their output and i think that's really important anyone out there who wants to become an influencer anyone out there who wants to use social media as a as a way of kind of enhancing their profile needs to really think about what they're offering in terms of value and making sure that they kind of if anything write that on a big piece of paper stick it on the wall and stick to it and ev- and always refer back to that kind of core message at the heart of their own brand to yes. say when a when a brief comes in that's you know worth 600 quid and you know rent's a bit tight but actually it's to advertise I don't know, Pop-Tarts, and you don't do that kind of content. You're a gluten-free blogger. <laughs> you, exactly. You don't do that kind of content. You know, it's and that's really hard because I think a lot of influencers, and this is, you know, you set yourself out as a self-employed person. You need to make money, yeah. ultimately, because you need to pay the bills. You know, you sometimes fast cash is very, very appealing. And so it's hard. But I think the people who kind of set themselves out have a clear brand message will deliver clear value to their audience will grow that audience and will kind of reap the benefits in the medium to long term i think people who just go for that quick buck will ultimately you know find it's not all it's cracked up to be and and fall away because your integrity and the trust of your audience is your most valuable asset more valuable than the number of followers you've got more valuable than how pretty your blog looks or how good your Instagram pictures are. It's that integrity and that trust. And if you lose that, there's no rebranding to get it back. Yeah, no, and it's game over. And I, I kind of think, you know, where's the where's the fun in it? You know, where's the where's the sense of satisfaction in yeah. in doing the doing the mediocre content? Because I think I see a lot of people who do the mediocre content have a they're more likely to cheat. They're more likely to do things because of course they're not getting the audience that they want. So they're not building an audience they're not making connections so they start to invest their resources in you know dubious tools that allow them to build a very quick audience overnight and you see that and you think but, but again there's no satisfaction in that for you surely no. because you're not re- being rewarded on the basis of merit you're being rewarded on the basis of the fact that you have a credit card and you found a website that can get you 10,000 followers overnight <laughs> and ultimately you know that that will come kind of crashing down either sort of personally and emotionally or or even financially if people start to find this out about you which is probably inevitable 
in the long run, I think that's not a sustainable business model as technology. Yeah, I think it is inevitable in the long run. And I just think, you know, there are people out there who can make money out of doing that kind of thing. But again, where's the satisfaction in kind of just being the gun for hire and just jumping between different brands, not really having that consistent theme and that narrative, you know, doing breakfast cereal one minute and doing very fast, expensive cars the next. (laughs) As, which is what I keep seeing a lot of people do. And I'm not saying that there aren't influencers out there who could do both of those credibly. It's just that that kind of, you know, that, that lifestyle chasing, numbers chasing, jumping between and just picking up the checks is kind of a bit like, where's this going to end for you? <laughs> I'm glad to hear you say using the word value a lot through all of that because that is one of the core messages I always use when I'm kind of mentoring people or helping people out with their sponsored content. That's the thing I always come back to is what is the value of this post beyond the product? Because that can't be the value because the product is not going to be for everybody. There's no product in the world that absolutely everybody is going to read about and want to buy. So whether it's an Instagram post or it's a blog post, I'm always thinking, okay, well, if someone read this and they didn't want the product, what are they going to take away from it anyway? Can I still put in some like Mm. top tips or like a playlist or a free download or something that still means that the content has equivalent value to everybody no i think that's a really good point i think if you're not assessing your content i think value is not just influencer marketing value is the key of social media now you know again content fatigue we're, we're all bored of what we see and we only follow feeds of content that are valuable to us that have a value to us and that value can be it could be the news it could be stocks and share prices, or it could be a lifestyle blogger, but it has to have value. Right. The value can just be that it makes you laugh or it makes you feel yeah. uplifted or like you're not on your own or anything like that. It doesn't have to be something tangible. But... Yeah. I mean, I've, I follow Simpsons quote of the day, quotes of the day on, on uh, Twitter, which is a great thread. <laughs> and the guy puts out a couple of quotes from The Simpsons every day. That has a huge value to me because I find The Simpsons really funny. So I like that. That's That has, a, that has an equal value to... Uh, you know a lifestyle blogger who who produces like really glorious content i value them equally but in different ways you know they provide different things to me um, and you mentioned the simpsons thing in your enabler article don't you <laughs> did i <laughs> i always always mentioned the simpsons it is a great example he's never done any branded posts he's got yeah. nearly a million followers on twitter it, it would just you know maybe he'd do a branded post about the simpsons that would make sense yeah he could do affiliate linking maybe but you know he would immediately kill his proposition because you're like, you know, this isn't this isn't what people are here for. They're here for the Simpson quote of the day. It just <laughs> wouldn't convert, would it? If he was suddenly no. like, oh, and buy this soap powder, you'd just be like, well, I don't know you or trust your recommendations about soap powder. Yeah, yeah. Just because we like the same Simpsons quotes. And I think there has to be, sometimes there can be a trade-off. I know, I mean, I follow a few football blogs and these guys are paid by the bookies to put out the odds every saturday before the football and you get a lot of people on there complaining and going i only follow you for the previews and the reviews and i really like that stuff and i don't like being advertised to (laughs) and one of the guys i follow always replies to them and goes look how do you think i pay my bills yeah you know i'm producing meters tons of free content Mm -hmm. for you that you highly value you've got to accept a bit of advertising to cover unless you're going to pay for it which you're obviously not you know you've got to accept a bit of advertising in there talked about this in episode just a couple of weeks ago actually where someone complained to me about my podcast about me advertising my own e-course at the end of my podcast <laughs> and I was just like <laughs> oh, well no. it's not going to get any more relevant than that as advertising goes like yeah that, it's just bizarre I think there is a kind of skepticism about commerce and business and you're like at the end of the day 
And we most of us work for companies in one way or all of us work for companies in one way or another. All of us buy products. All of us like some brands and hate other brands. We've got to accept that you know, advertising has a bad name a lot of the time, but actually it's quite enriching to your life because it introduces you to things that you otherwise wouldn't know about. So to criticize someone for advertising through their channel is is slightly ridiculous you can criticize what they advertised and how they advertised it but i don't think you can criticize the notion that you know they are going to advertise to you no i always say well hang on do you watch the x factor and phone in in the ad breaks to complain about being (laughs) advertised to because that's how you get that free content exactly and uh, you know a lot of the time when when i was writing more for the blog that i write for we did a lot of sponsored trips where brands pay for us to go to cities around the UK and we did little kind of mini city guides that were sponsored by a brand and it would either feature the product in the in the shots mm-hmm. sometimes or so a trainer brand sponsored us to do a post about Leeds a car brand sponsored to do a post about Brighton another car brand sponsored to do a post about Liverpool the one about Liverpool didn't have any product in it at all it just said on it it's sponsored by you know this car brand the one in Brighton featured the car in a few shots the one in Leeds featured the trainers now we wouldn't have ever created that content if that wasn't sponsored. Yeah. Because I couldn't afford to spend three days in Liverpool. I mean, I could at a certain point in my life, but I'd have to choose to want to do that. You know, Yeah. the brand wanted us to go there. They were prepared to pay us the money. People really loved that content. It's performed really well. So you couldn't really complain about the fact it was sponsored. If it was sponsored by Tampax and you were like just... <laughs> <laughs> that would be strange. Yeah, it was a really poor match. And, and in the same way, I suppose, if you're watching The X Factor and all of a sudden an advert for, I don't know, like a, a porn phone line came on, maybe you would complain. <laughs> I think there's rules against that, but yeah, so you should <laughs> complain. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I've seen some influencers and unfortunately a couple of them that I quite like and respect doing adverts for, for gambling websites. Now, I know a couple of people complained to me privately and said, I can't believe this guy's done this. And in a way, I'm like, well, I've got nothing against gambling. I, the, the, what I'm really complaining about is would complain about to them would be the fact that I just don't think it matches them at all. Mm. I just don't think it matches their, you know, their brand, their own personal brand. And I don't think the content they produce matches the other content they produce. I just find it a really jarring and strange collaboration. That's the negative for me in that aspect. It's not necessarily the product that they're advertising. Yeah, that's where I was trying to go. (laughs) (laughs) With with you are sponsored by trainers and cars rather than tampons because when it feels like a natural marriage between brand and influencer, it's much harder to object to there being a sponsor than when it just doesn't sit quite right and you it becomes a lot more obvious. I think I butchered this quote in our um, panel discussion and I'm probably going to butcher it again, but a a colleague said in a pitch um, to, not a pitch, in a meeting, sorry, with a a client, they said something like, the best influencers, the good influencers turn the wrong projects down and the the best influencers adapt them or something like that. Mm -hmm. I wish I could look up the quote because she said it so perfectly. I immediately wrote it down and tweeted it and I think it's one of my best performing tweets ever. And it really, really hit the nail on the head. It's that thing of, you know, good influencers walk away from projects which just aren't right in any sense. And good influencers also take a project and adapt it to make it fit them. Right. You know, and I think both of those are equally valid. You know, with your example, you know, Tampax wouldn't have worked for us as a sponsor for a Liverpool trip. The car brand did. But at the same time, if the car brand had said every photo on the blog post has to feature the car, that wouldn't have worked either. 
Yes. So we needed to have gone back to them. They didn't say that, but we needed to have gone back to them and say, look, this isn't going to work. You know, we need to adapt this. We need to change this. And we talked about this quite a bit at the panel as well, didn't we? That, that I always tell people to push back because in that equation of influencer and brand, you're sort of the talent. I'm doing that in, in those inverted commas. Um, yeah. But you are in a sort of a privileged position where they've invested some time and some thought into using you already, hopefully. So if you don't think a brief is right, you should push back. It's a good thing to to email back and say, I like what you're doing, but this part doesn't work for me. Yeah. And I guess good brands will equally push back, but also have that flexibility. And it's kind of a push and shove between the two to find the right middle ground. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think I, I had this question on Twitter a while ago, actually. Someone said, you know, I'm new to blogging. I'm new to influencer marketing. I've just been asked by a brand to do a project and it's paid and I'm tempted, but I don't think it's for me. If I say no, will they never approach me again? And I was like, well, firstly, if anyone would not approach you again because you said no, you would never, you should never work with them anyway yes. because they're clearly they're doing it all for the wrong reasons. But secondly, like I, I respect that when an influencer says no or when they give pushback or when they want to change the brief because as someone who works in influencer marketing, that makes my life easier. I know I'm not selling the wrong person to a brand. You know, I know I'm getting authenticity if they say no, if that makes sense in yeah. a weird way. Because I'm like, okay, well, this isn't for them. Well, this project isn't for them. And I think influencers might even be surprised. You know, agencies and brands keep a lot of notes on people. And I don't mean that in a bad way. They're not <laughs> sort of snooping on them. But we will write down. Yeah, you know, I had someone the other day, wanted to, a brand wanted to work with them, and they're a vegan. And they can't because this brand doesn't produce any vegan food. So I put the note down, you know, she's a vegan. So so we can't do that. But that doesn't preclude her from any other work. Just because she said no to that doesn't mean I kind of stood up in the middle of the office and told everyone <laughs> never to speak to her again. Put her a wanted picture on the wall. I'm like, the con- her content's great. We'd, I'd love to work with her on many different, uh, many number of our clients and brands will probably work with in the future. She's always kind of in my mind. Just for this, it's a no. You know, for any non-vegan product, food product, we can't do it, but that's fine. And it kind of, it reaffirms your, your sense of the, that they have that integrity in their work, I suppose, because once they've said no once, you know that they're going to say it again if they need to. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's some part of me really wants to do a test where I take, I kind of invent the worst campaign for the worst <laughs> brand and send it out to those influencers. And the ones who immediately say yes, I just kind of <laughs> never talk to them again. Because <laughs> it's like, you know, this is, you know, we don't want to work with you or literally work for anybody. But I can't really think what that would be. And I don't really have the time, unfortunately. <laughs> it would be an interesting social experiment. It would be a very interesting social experiment. I'd be even more interested to see if I could guess who would say yes and who would say no. I think you'd have to see it through to the end and actually let them produce some content. <laughs> because then there's always going to be the 1% that could pull out some amazing content that actually made it work. Yeah, it really resonates and the brand does really well, even <laughs> yeah. though I just invented it. Yeah, and you're like, shit, okay. Turn myself into a millionaire for an influence, <laughs> yeah. so it'd be incredible. But no, I mean, I think that's really important. I think for brands as well, if there's any of them listening, you know, don't think that you are that you have more power than you do. You know, I, I've worked with brands in the past who are shocked, and I mean seriously shocked, that they have approached, let's say, a 20-year-old kid who lives in his mum's spare room who has a massive YouTube following and that guy said no to a project. Mm-hmm. You know, they are, and they're shocked to the point of almost like offended slash livid. And I'm like, you don't have a right to be. Like, if, you know, this isn't, again, you're not buying ad space in a magazine. You know, if you find up the, the, the Times and say you want an ad, they will sell you an ad for pretty much anything. But an influencer doesn't feel it's going to work for them or can't meet the deadline, for instance, or isn't even in the country. You know, they have 
they're going to say no to you. I love that. And I, I hope that there are brands listening and hearing that message. Just because I think if we can kind of normalise that, if we can get brands and influencers and their expectations of each other to match up, it makes the whole thing a lot more smooth and simple. Yeah, no, I understand. The, I mean, I have the frustrations. Brands have the frustration. Other agents have the frustration. You're, you're, you're up against it. It's always a short time scale. You're trying to find the right people to produce the best content. And you found someone and you think they're great. You think it will work out brilliantly and you get in touch and they say no. And it's not because they're not free. It's not because they can't do it, but it's because they just don't feel it's right for them. And it is frustrating, but I find it hard to believe that many people would really take offense to that. I think my example is kind of an exception among many. You know, to be honest, when someone says no to me, I'm like, okay, great. You know, I'll stay in touch. I'll, I'll speak to you if there are more projects come up, but I'm more concerned about getting the next person on the list to say yes. Yeah, moving on. You've got you've got to get to the deadline. You know, we've got to get content created. We've, you know, the brand want it. We've got to get it out there. So I feel like we could talk about this all night. We could. Yeah, yeah. it's just like this, it's such a huge topic, and I feel like we've only just scratched the surface. But I'm conscious of your time. So, where can people find out more about your work and read more of your genius on this subject? More of my genius, <laughs> more of my ramblings. They can find me on Twitter or Instagram, and my my I was gonna say my hashtag, my handle is uh, Nick Speller, but without a C, so it's N I K S P U W L E R. And also find me on LinkedIn because that's where ninety percent of my articles on influencer marketing are published, just because it's very easy to publish stuff on there. I will find links and share them all in the show notes as well. That would be perfect. I suspect a lot of people are like me and don't venture onto LinkedIn very often yet. No, no. Um I do have a Tumblr, which is my name dot tumblr dot com or something like that. Um and I put all of my articles up there and all of my blogging work as well so it's a bit of a mix but it's quite nicely set out so i think people should easily be able to find it awesome well thank you so much for your time cool no that's i as you said i could talk about this forever so (laughs) well we may well have to get you back on i would love to yes as the landscape carries on changing because i suspect in even in a year's time this conversation could be completely different six months I reckon it'll be uh, <laughs> it'll be different it's um it's fast paced unfortunately fortunately and unfortunately yeah it's exciting it's exciting but also tiring <laughs> <laughs> yeah you can get links to all the articles and everything we've mentioned in this episode as well as a summary and signpost to all of Nick's social media at meandola.co.uk forward slash podcast 31 and there you can also sign up to get email notifications from me about podcasts and courses and more My very favourite thing about all of these podcasts is always the conversations that happen after with you guys online. So do look up me and Nick on Twitter or on Instagram where we both hang out regularly and let us know what you think and what you're saying and doing in response to this episode. I will be back next week with possibly my favourite ever podcast guest that I've had to date. So I hope you can join me. It's going to be an exciting one. Have a great week.